Hi everyone, welcome back to TTT, the Talking Transport Transformation Podcast, brought to you by Tumi, the Transformative Urban Mobility Initiative. Chances are that if you ever visited Amsterdam or any other Dutch city, you may have noticed the difference to most other urban areas. More bicycles, less cars, and generally more space for pedestrians. At least that must have been the experience for Melissa and Chris Bruntlett when they first visited Delft in the Netherlands. In 2019, they decided to pack their bags and move from Vancouver to Delft with their family to experience the exceptionally bicycle-friendly city as residents rather than visitors. Melissa now works with Mobicon, a bicontinental mobility consultancy supporting the promotion of Dutch transport knowledge policy and design principles in countries across Europe and North America. Chris is a communications manager for the Dutch Cycling Embassy, using his knowledge and passion to share practical lessons for global cities wishing to learn from the Netherlands' success. Melissa and Chris put down their thoughts on living in Delft from their perspective as mobility experts in their new book Curbing Traffic, The Human Case for Fewer Cars in Our Lives, which was recently published. In this episode, they got the chance to talk to us about their very own personal story and explain how it feels for them living in a human-centered city. So let's listen in and find out what their takeaways are. So hi, Melissa. Hi, Chris. Really great to have you both at our Tumi podcast. Hi, thanks for having us, Marvin. Nice. Really nice to talk to you. I would say let's directly dive in our conversation. And uh, I just saw and realized that you have um, released a new book. Your first one, uh, Building the Cycling City, was published in 2018, if I'm uh, correct. Now you have just published um, Curbing Traffic, the Human Case for Fewer Cars in Our Lives. And when I compare the two books, it, it feels like you have been really on a journey. Building the Cycling City, the first book, it really expresses your fascination for cycling as a sustainable mode of transport. And I really like how you, you outline the success um, of the Dutch approach to bicycle-friendly cities. And now in the second one, in Curbing Traffic, you go much more beneath the surface of mobility, it seems. And the book demonstrates transport and mobility as a tool for accessibility, for social equity and also justice. And I would be interested to know, and also our listeners, I assume, if you could tell us a bit more about your journey, which you have been through in the past three years on the way to this second book. Yeah, I think it's interesting to think of it as a journey, our, our personal journey, which is very much what the second uh, book is about which really did start with cycling. Cycling was our gateway into transportation and urban planning as uh, amateur advocates in Vancouver. Uh, we were just riding bikes and, and wanted to make our city better for us and the, and, and the people that we lived amongst. And so we started advocating for uh, and getting involved in the citywide discussion that was taking place about cycling. But there was very little uh, conversation about the why um, and I think even we ourselves didn't understand fully why it was important to have more cycling in the city and, and, and inversely 
uh, fewer cars. So we wrote this first book, focused very much on the cycling, on getting more people cycling. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, two years of promoting the book, landing jobs in the Netherlands, coming here to live full-time as residents, that we really started comprehending the why aspect. And it goes far beyond your usual conversations about reducing congestion or, or addressing climate change or, or improving public health. It affects us as a society in terms of our equity, as you said, you know, your, uh, social equity and justice, our mental health, uh, having fewer cars in our lives makes us happier people. Um, and, and I think we wanted to articulate that in, in this second book uh, in terms of communicating those aspects and, and helping people understand what we have to gain by uh, not banning cars altogether. Let's, let's make it perfectly clear but just replacing those short and necessary car trips in our cities and replacing it with something more quiet, sustainable, uh, and space efficient. Yeah. And with, with curbing traffic, it was very much, uh, along with explaining a lot of those whys and, and providing the research, also providing that personal journey for us, because a lot of people here in the Netherlands ask us why we would move from the vast natural expanses of Canada to what they refer to as their small crowded country. Uh, and, for us, you know, we knew why we were moving here. We knew that there were trade-offs uh, from leaving Canada where we were gaining more access to a variety of cities at a more human scale. But I don't think either of us were fully prepared for how much impact that had on us in terms of reducing our daily stresses and, and feeling a lot more socially connected with our community, but even for our children, who were the reason that we actually moved here to really provide them more opportunities for autonomy and freedom. And, you know, that we expected it, but I don't think we expected it to the scale that we experienced it. And so Curbing Traffic is also a book to explain that as well in terms of, you know, where we were surprised or, or taken aback. And so it's a bit of a personal journey and also uh, getting into understanding why we felt that way and why more people should feel that way if we design our cities a little bit differently. Great. I fully agree. And uh, this seems very, very interesting, this, this journey and also this development. And you also mentioned it, Melissa, the differences between the countries, I think, have a huge impact on also personal um, yeah, developments. And so uh, I would also like to know, um, sometimes like choosing bicycles is perceived as, as a, a privilege, like um, when you take the bike, of course, you can reach destinations um, within short distance, like sometimes walking distance, and you don't have to rely on cars or even on, on public transport. And this, um, some people say, is, is a privilege. And now you have, I mean, you can take, you can do the comparison between the Netherlands, which is like the cycling paradise, right? Uh, but also Canada, which is uh, rather car-oriented, um, so what is your perception on this this um, assumption? I think it's a it's a fair presumption in as much as you presume that this is the way it is based on the way the environment is treated around you. So in Vancouver, Canada, where we were living, um, you could see how that would be a valid perception in that the investments in cycling and the investments in those connections for those shorter trips were largely centralized to the downtown core where a lot more affluent people were living or in the more affluent neighborhoods where you have the bigger homes and people with a lot with already enough 
options for mobility. Uh, however, those weren't stretching out to the lower income neighborhoods, the more diverse neighborhoods. And so you can see how that uh, perception of privilege is conflated to the larger idea of creating more space for cycling. And it's something that we saw repeated in a lot of North American cities is that when we're in, they're investing in cycling, it's, it's looking at it neighborhood by neighborhood and often starting where the, there's already an excess of mobility choices. And what's different in the Netherlands and what has been a conscious decision since they started planning for bicycles uh, more actively in the, in the early 70s and into the 80s is that it's a network approach. So it's looking at the entire city and figuring out how do we connect every neighborhood to the amenities within the city. So it's not just where people with more money or, or more opportunities live, but it's also in less affluent or lower income neighborhoods. It's also reaching out to the diverse communities, especially where you have a lot of people that have migrated from the global South, for example, to Netherlands, providing them with just as many mobility options as anywhere else in the city. And that's that's something Chris and I have really been promoting, uh, not just since we moved here, but even before that, is that if you really want to make cycling and walking an option for everybody, then you need to reach every corner of the city and not just start with the areas that, that already have uh, the means to to get around in a, in a multitude of options. Yeah, I mean, I, I think living in a walkable, bikeable neighborhood is only perceived as a privilege because we've built so few of them around the world. Uh, so the demand for it is really high and people are willing to pay a premium to live in such a pleasant uh, place. And the answer is not to... Uh, um, perceive that as a problem, except to create more walkable and bikeable neighborhoods, to give more people access to those types of amenities and that quality of life. And I think, uh, as Melissa addressed, we, we spent a whole chapter talking about access to opportunity uh, and proximity to opportunity. Uh, and the Dutch approach has been um, try to provide that in an, as an equitable way as possible so that 81% of the country is uh, within seven and a half kilometer bike ride of a train station. That means they can access housing, education, employment, um, everything they need in their day-to-day -day lives without having to spend an exorbitant amount of their income on a private automobile. And I think this is the other end of the, uh, the transportation or affordability question that we often uh, don't discuss is how much money are we spending on our transportation? And the car is obviously the most expensive means to get from A to B. And yet we used to continue to build cities that force people to um, uh, maintain that expense just to participate in society. So thank you very much, Chris, for highlighting why the Dutch model is so successful. But speaking about the Netherlands, of course, or maybe countries which are not the Netherlands, we have to we have to observe that many cities still struggle um, to shift away from, from car-centered city planning. And uh, even though despite they bring these advantages you just mentioned uh, of human-centered uh, cities. So what is missing there? Is it a matter of financing or is there a lack of political will? What do you think? It's very, very much uh, a political question, I think. And that's one thing that we try to address every day in our, our work is We know the technical solutions. We know uh, that these solutions actually don't cost that much money compared to the car infrastructure. It's just helping politicians understand the importance 
of designing things a bit differently and not shying away when, when the controversy starts. And this is uh, the big challenge is uh, we've been designing around the car for 50 years. Our transportation departments, our society is oriented around this single mode of transport um, that any suggestion of shifting away from that um, immediately faces resistance. And I think the important thing to understand is that resistance is not necessarily representative of all of society. Um, and, and as we were saying earlier, you know, the fact that walkable, bikeable neighborhoods are so in demand and so popular means that people do want choices and people do want to live in different ways. It's just the choices have been made for them by the urban and, and transportation planners. So um, change is always hard. And, and But in particular in this area, um, you do have a vocal minority that gets out there, gets in front of the media, gets on social media, gets uh, writes, writes letters to politicians, uh, in a, uh, well, based on a lot of misinformation, a lot of, uh, you know, incorrect assumptions. Um, but uh, as we see again and again, cities like Paris and London and even Vancouver, once they start uh, those quote unquote controversial changes, eventually people the vast majority of the population uh, embrace them. Uh, the politicians who champion them uh, tend to win uh, elections, and, and it starts this very positive, virtuous cycle uh, towards becoming more human-centric. But often the first step is the hardest, and, and that's what we're seeing uh, even now in a post-COVID world where uh, you would think that the change is fairly easy. People have seen their city with, with fewer cars and, and seen the need for change, uh, but there's still some, um, shall we say, uh, holdouts to to what we see as progress in, in terms of moving to uh, a more, uh, well, a less car-based uh, urban environment. I think that's a very important point, especially really that the first step always is the hardest one. And so what would you say, You we already slightly touched upon that, but what would you say, how can we make sure that the, the Dutch model, which is, Uh, as successful, how can we how can we rec replicate this model around the world, especially looking at cities in the global south, for example, without risking, for example, gentrification of city districts? Well, it, it comes back to uh, what we were saying earlier about the real network approach to design. So, uh, when we're talking about building out walking and cycling, it's looking at the entire city where everyone needs to get to, not just a select few, and really starting to connect those. And that's that's the first step in terms of creating a more equitable transport system. But beyond that, it's about recognizing who uses the systems or who you want to use the systems. So uh, oftentimes, um, for various reasons, most of the people that you'll see taking up cycling first are usually male, they're usually in between their 25, 25 and 30, or 50, sorry, in terms of years. Um, and that's obviously not representative of everyone who can use walking and cycling as a way to get around their city. So if we look at the needs of children who we know can't drive until a certain age, so walking and cycling is the only way that they can get around autonomously, uh, then how do we design to make that safer? How do we connect kids to their schools, to their community centers, within their neighborhoods, so that they have that ability to travel with caregivers when they're much younger. So thinking about how a three-year-old would experience the city, how do we make that comfortable for them? But then even continuing on into later primary school years and even high school teenage years, how do we enable children to continue to travel, to gain confidence, 
to experience risk and adapt in order to learn how they can move around their city uh, safely and comfortably. Um, and then beyond that, thinking about gender, how do women experience the city? A lot of times women are doing more and more of the care trips. Uh, that is shifting, and we are seeing a bit of a balance, at least in the global north um, and in some areas of the global south. Um, but thinking about how we connect women in that idea of trip chaining. So oftentimes it's not just the trip from home to work, but it's from home to childcare or school to running errands to work and then everything in between before they come back home. How do we facilitate that so that it's easier for them to do linking, walking, cycling, and public transport? And that extends also to people living with disabilities who also experience the world a little bit uh, more like that, not necessarily a direct A to B in terms of work and home all the time, but various trips. And then, of course, extending it even further to how do we ensure that our elderly can still experience their cities, their environments, their neighborhoods the way uh, that they did when they were much younger well into their senior years, because we know that there is an age when we can no longer drive. It's just not safe for us in terms of operating a motor vehicle with reduced capacity in our own bodies. So how do we make sure that they can walk, they can cycle, they can link to pub reliable public transport to be able to navigate their cities? And in that way, we can create more equitable spaces. So not just looking at the status quo that we have now, but but building beyond that to make sure that regardless of age or ability or background, everyone is afforded the same rights to transport. Yeah, maybe a little bit uncomfortable with the, the phrase Dutch model, because that implies that the Netherlands has gotten it perfectly, and they certainly haven't. Uh, you know, they're still uh, bizarrely investing billions of euros in widening motorways to cure congestion for, you know, a very small percentage of, uh, of, of commuters uh, during rush hour. Uh, and, and this is the, the problem. If we're talking about equity, we're talking about making our transportation investments in the places where they're most needed. That is not um, putting money, back, you know, good money after bad money in terms of uh, widening motorways that are only going to get congested later on uh, to try to improve commute times by a few minutes to the people who already have the most mobility and the most means. Um, we need to look at investing our transportation money in public transportation and, you know, better footpaths, better uh, cycleways uh, in order for people with less mobility and less economic means um, to to uh, access opportunity and, and participate in society. So I think that has to be the basis that, that we use our, our guiding principle as, a, as an industry moving forward rather than trying to solve congestion for a few people. Uh, and, and COVID, more than anything, I think, has, again, shown that um, work patterns are flexible. Uh, not everybody has to be in an office. Uh, and, and we don't have to put 80 or 90% of our transportation budget into making car travel uh, comfortable and convenient and fast for uh, those that can afford it. That is so true. I couldn't agree more. And uh, maybe this is already a, a good point to come to my last question um, to both of you. So if you had one wish, what would you change in, in city or in mobility planning in general to improve the situation? Can I go first? Am I, gonna, I might steal what you... No. No. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I think this is one point we make in the, particularly in the accessibility chapter of the book, is that cities need to start measuring not just the trips people take, but the trips that they don't take, uh, if that makes sense. Because I think right now, because our streets are so uh, dangerous and stressful and unpleasant and inaccessible to people that are perhaps more vulnerable, um, they tend to just stay home and, and, and avoid making a trip to a grocery store or a community center or a friend's house. And if we can somehow quantify those trips that people would like to make but don't necessarily make because the mobility systems and the street designs are not there to support those trips, um, then we can start building yeah, mobility networks and, and streets that, that support, again, those people that uh, are perhaps excluded from uh, the current uh, car-dominated paradigm. So um, I, I don't know how to do it. We've been asked, you know, what, what cities around the world are doing this and doing it well, and, and we don't have an answer. Um, but we need to do better to anticipate the, the latent demand, the need, the desire for people to move autonomously and participate in society and, and, um, and start, yeah, investing and, and, and designing for those, those trips people would like to make rather than the ones that they are uh, currently making. You didn't steal my answer. We're good. Okay. <laughs> for me, uh, I think the biggest change I'd like to see, and I, I see a slight shift more and more over the years as, as we start to understand equity in terms of transport planning more. But I think the one thing that I would really change or want to see is having a greater diversity of voices in the room when decisions are being made. So that's in terms of leadership, having more women, more people of color, more people with disabilities uh, at the decision-making table, um, taking on those leadership roles, but also from a community level, involving these people more in the conversation. So Chris talked about the trips that people don't take, but oftentimes we don't understand them because we don't even invite those people into the room. So for me, I, I really am bolstered by people that make more of an effort to have uh, greater diversity in the conversation, but that needs to be an imperative, a priority, and even a policy for cities moving forward in terms of planning is, is getting more diverse, more diverse voices at the table and in leadership positions so that when these ideas are put forward or we're planning our cities, there's a greater understanding from a broader spectrum of people as to what will make our cities work best for everyone. Melissa, Chris, thank you so much. Um, it's been really great fun talking to you. Um, your, your, your personal journey advocating for the cycling-friendly and also human-centered city honestly is inspiring me. And uh, it seems like you are a great role model for our politicians on the one hand and also for our children. Um, because, of course, I think and I truly believe that the cities we live in... Um, They have a great influence on how we, we develop and how we how we raise. And I mean, hopefully you and I think I'm sure you will spread the, the understanding and also the benefits of equitable and also accessible cities. And I can just say, keep up the good work. And I really look forward to, to talk to you again in the future. And maybe we can look back then and check whether, whether we have been successful in yeah, spreading the vision of uh, human-centered cities. Thanks again. No, oh, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you again, Melissa and Chris, for sharing your personal and inspiring experience with us. 
We hope you all enjoyed today's episode. If you want to read more about Melissa's and Chris's journey, you'll find a link to their book, Curbing Traffic, in our show notes. As always, thanks for tuning in and hear you next time.